Good morning, it's Sunday, the 30th of October, 2016. Tonight is what's known as Mischief Night. After the sun sets, in the eerie darkness, children and teens are supposed to engage in pranks and minor vandalism. And let me tell you, if you're one of the youngsters who are out to cause mayhem tonight, do this old storyteller a favor and stay away from my house, please. And because tomorrow is All Hallows' Eve, I bring you the story of one of the most successful low-budget horror films of all time, The Blair Witch Project, on the 110th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. Thanks for having coffee with me today. Look, I've got plenty of candy waiting for you if you knock on my door, because today's trick-or-treat in my neighborhood. Technically a day early, but that's the way my neighborhood does it, so feel free to drop by. Don't worry that you'll be taking away my enjoyment of watching football on Sunday. Whatever. So today we look at the 1999 horror film, The Blair Witch Project. And I'd like to thank Nancy from the History Files for suggesting today's topic. She thought it would be a good one for Halloween, and I agree. Thanks so much, Nancy. You know, one of the biggest complaints about the Blair Witch Project was that it caused motion sickness in some people due to all the shaky camera work. I actually know somebody who got sick in the theater while watching it. And just coincidentally, on a recent episode of Science Friday, I learned what causes motion sickness. I mean, why can a person be sitting practically motionless and get sick from a movie screen or or the ocean or whatever? Why is that? Well, and I'm sure this is a simplified explanation, but back in the day, before there were movies and ocean liners, when people were living in caves and whatnot, the only time the world would seem to be shaking or spinning while one was standing still was when they were sick, usually from eating something they shouldn't of. So the natural reaction of the body when you see the world spinning or shaking and your brain knows that it shouldn't be is to evacuate the contents of your stomach because you've probably ate something bad. In other words, handheld camera work is interpreted by the brain as you being sick. Interesting, no? I thought it was. So, like I said, today's story is one of the Blair Witch and... All right, first, some quick UFO news. The headline of the Express website states, Proof of aliens? Staggering pictures of UFOs seen over Vienna go viral. Yeah, and I looked at it, and there are real images of bright objects in the sky over Vienna. It looks like some sort of circle of lights in the air that couldn't possibly be a drone or a helicopter covered in lights. It's definitely proof that aliens from another world are visiting the Earth. Case closed. (laughs) You know, this gets a little old. Blurry photos that could have dozens of logical explanations are reported by the media as possible alien ships. But then again, if the headline said, Intoxicated man mistakes drone as flying saucer, well, that wouldn't get many clicks. But proof of aliens? That's going to get clicks. Oh, by the way, I don't know if the man who took the pictures was drunk. That was just for comic effect. He probably wasn't. 
Anyway, how about the amazing story of a film that was made for practically nothing and unexpectedly became one of the most talked about films of 1999? This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. This is my home, which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore the Blair Witch. I can see you. I'm real excited about this. Thank you for I'm the opportunity. I'm very glad. This area's been haunted by that old woman. Oh, yeah. I don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're making a documentary. Not about us getting lost. We're making a documentary about a witch. I don't. Lost? Admit that first. No, I know we're not lost. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. (laughs) Tell me where you are, Josh! I have a fascination with low-budget films that do extremely well. Films like The Evil Dead, Clerks, Night of the Living Dead, and El Mariachi all fascinate me. One such film was The Blair Witch Project from 1999. I saw it in theaters when it came out and I remember enjoying it, though since then I've had no desire to watch it again. The idea of The Blair Witch Project wasn't all that of an original idea. The 1980 Italian horror film Cannibal Holocaust tells the story of a missing documentary film crew who had gone into the Amazon to film cannibal tribes. The crew was never found, but the footage they shot is recovered. Also in 1998, there was a film called The Last Broadcast, in which a couple of public access TV hosts of a program called Facts or Fiction go into the woods with a few others. Things don't go well. It was the same shaky camera pseudo-documentary style as The Blair Witch. And I wouldn't accuse the makers of The Blair Witch of stealing, but many have assumed that they were inspired by these films. The film was the brainchild of Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez, who as early as 1993 realized that they found documentaries on the paranormal scarier than traditional horror films. They went out and rented such things like The Legend of Boggy Creek and Ancient Astronauts and began to wonder if they could do something like that themselves, something with found footage, something in the vein of Leonard Nimoy's In Search Of. We love those, Sanchez said. Those grainy pictures of UFOs and Bigfoot, those were a lot scarier than the movies. Daniel Myrick was born in Sarasota, Florida in 1963 and graduated from the University of Central Florida's School of Film in 1994. Eduardo Sanchez was born in 1968 in Cuba and came to the United States in 1972. He studied television production at the Montgomery College in Maryland in a and obtained his degree from the University of Central Florida's film department. When they began The Blair Witch, neither man had ever made a feature film. They began with a 35-page outline which contained no dialogue. The dialogue would all be improvised during filming. The story would be of three filmmakers who disappear into the woods while doing a story on the legend of The Blair Witch, the ghost of Ellie Kenward, a Blair resident accused of practicing witchcraft in 1785 and sentenced to death by exposure. They chose Maryland because they thought it was close enough to the Salem witch trials, and they picked the name Blair because Sanchez's sister had gone to Blair High School and the name just popped into his head. He would say, 
It's really crazy now because it's such a perfect name. But like a lot of things, I had to choose a name, and that was the one that was there at the time. It took a while for the story to develop, and the original script was going to be much more like an In Search of episode, with the story of the three kids only being a part of it. There would be newscasts and interviews with residents and experts. The mother of one of the missing kids would hire a detective to investigate. It would be a complete documentary. The most important thing to the filmmakers was to have everything planned out and to make it believable. They wrote down every idea that came into their heads, much of which never made the final film. They formed the production company Haxen Films. The name Haxen comes from the 1922 Swedish-Danish silent movie Haxen. Haxen apparently translates to The Witch, and the film is done in a documentary style, and is the study of how superstition and misunderstandings of disease and mental illness could lead to the hysteria of the witch hunts. I've seen it, and it's actually a very interesting film. The first of the three main actors to be cast was Joshua Leonard. He was in his early 20s and was working as a freelance photographer and a videographer for a documentary production company. He was broke and living in Manhattan, and he was at the point where he didn't know what he wanted to do with the rest of his life. So when a friend said he heard that some guys were making a film and needed an actor who could operate a film camera, he went in with his camera in hand and got the part. The group auditioned people in Orlando, L.A., and New York by putting ads in film magazines like Backstage Magazine that said stuff like, Attention! Casting! Improvisational Feature Film! HFP is holding open calls for the Black Hills Project, non-union with paid travel and meals, shooting October-November for three weeks in Maryland, seeking women and men 18 to 25 with natural look, extremely challenging roles to be shot under very difficult conditions. As soon as the actor entered a room for their audition, the filmmakers would, without even a hello, ask them, You've served seven years of a nine-year sentence. Why should we let you out on parole? The idea is they wanted people who could improvise and could think quickly on their feet. People who understood why they were being asked this question were called back. People that didn't get it, well, they were asked to leave. Michael C. Williams had done a lot of improvisation, and he loved to camp. When he arrived, a few hundred people were in line to audition. He said that when he was asked the question of parole... He did his best Morgan Freeman impression from the Shawshank Redemption, and he made it to the next round. When Heather Donahue went into audition, she responded of why they should let her out of prison by saying, I don't think you should. Heather was a type of woman who, as she said, I'm one of those people who have the idea that you should always do things you're afraid of that don't involve prison or the hospital. When she saw the little sign that basically said, This shoot will be grueling. We don't care about your comfort, but we do care about your safety. And the entire thing will be improvised. She was like, Game on. That sounds amazing. Eduardo Sanchez said of Heather, She was able to go to places that none of the other actresses were going. So the three actors were cast, and to make things seem more authentic, they would use the real names in the film. And during filming, they would only be given the information they needed to know, and the rest would be kept secret. Heather was given all the information on the history of the Blair Witch, since that was her character. 
the actors were led to believe that the legend of the witch was a real thing. When they interviewed the residents at the beginning of the film, they were under the impression that they were interviewing real people about the real history of the Blair Witch. But in reality, many of them were actors planted by the filmmakers. The bit in which Heather talks in front of the cemetery was all written by Heather herself ahead of time. She said, I did a good job of freaking myself out as best as I could before we even got there. Producer Greg Hale had been through a survival school when he was in the Army and thought of the film as sort of a storytelling survival school obstacle course. He would use a GPS device to tell them where to go, but they wouldn't be told of what was going to happen when they got there, so they would get natural reactions. There was a safety plan with all the woods mapped out carefully. The filming took place at the Seneca Creek State Park in Montgomery County, Maryland, and lasted for eight days. The park is a state-owned public recreation area encompassing more than 6,300 acres, featuring facilities for boating, fishing, as well as trails for hiking and cycling and horseback riding. The result of this was that every now and again, the actors would have to stop and wait for a family to go by on their bicycles. During the filming in the woods, Merrick, Sanchez, and the other producers were always around, camouflaged in the woods, watching. When the actors were in their tents sleeping, they would leave flag boxes with food, water, and instructions for each of the actors, often playing one against the other. They would leave messages to build tension like, Heather knows more. Heather is not telling the truth about all this stuff. Each day, the actors were given less and less food to make them more irritable, but always given enough water to drink. Of course, the filmmakers would mess with them at night, often walking up and hitting the tent or playing the sounds of children from the distance or whatever they could do to spook the actors. The actors did their best to stay in character, but occasionally one or more of the actors thought it was necessary to discuss a scene. They created a word to let the others know they were breaking character. The word was taco. When one said taco, the others followed by saying the same. And after they all said taco, they all knew they were out of character and could discuss what was going on. And it wasn't like the three actors were alone by themselves in the woods for the whole eight days. Every now and again, if things weren't going right or if the filmmakers thought the actors needed some direction, they would come out of the woods and they would all talk. One day, it rained pretty hard and the actors were not only soaking wet but their tent had a couple of inches of water in it. So they used the safety plan to make it out of the forest and spent the night in a motel. Now in the original storyline, Mike was supposed to be the one who disappeared, but due to the improvisational style, arguing between Josh and Heather had become too much, so the filmmakers made a decision to have Josh as the one that goes away. In his note for the day, he was told that when he was sure the others were asleep, to sneak out of the tent. And if one should notice him leaving, he was to say that he had to go to the bathroom. When he left the tent, the filmmakers were waiting for him in the dark, and they said, you're dead, dude. And they took him out to Denny's for a really good meal. Heather's big, now-famous apology scene, the one in which we only see the top right side of her head, was totally improvised. They had just driven a day to get to the house for the finale, and she went off by herself. The note she received said, You realize now that you're going to die. Say what you need to say to make amends. 
The ad framing of the shot was done accidentally as she didn't realize the camera was zoomed in that close. She said of the moment, I was so proud of that moment because it's everything you're not supposed to do as a film actress. The snot was flowing, it was very unflattering, and it was just true and ugly and messy and sloppy. I don't think people get to see that kind of thing very often. A really good ugly cry on the screen. The big ending house scene was done on October 30th, and they used the Griggs House, an historical home located in Granite, Maryland, built in the 19th century. The cast was camped just out of sight from the house, not knowing the house was there. They were just told which way to walk, so when they reached the house, their reactions were real. Once inside the house, the sounds of Josh were played. Everything was going well until the batteries on the lights ran out. They all had to come back the following day on Halloween, October 31st, to finish the filming. When they finished the filming, they all just walked out of the woods exhausted and dirty, only to be surrounded by people in costumes. After a quick meal at Denny's, they all went their own way. Heather said, That was it. I mean, there was nothing to celebrate. It was just a little indie that we shot. It didn't really feel like a big deal. Then the hard part for Dan and Eduardo began as they spent the next eight months in the editing room, trying to edit the footage into a coherent story. Ed would edit at night and Dan would edit during the day. It was soon realized there was something special about the footage with the young actors, and as time went on, all the other stuff they were planning, the newscasts, the interviews, the search for the kids, all found its way to the cutting room floor. And if any time they came across footage that didn't seem real, or a bit contrived, or a piece of dialogue they felt sounded scripted, it was dropped as well. And then they began the most ingenious part of this whole process. While editing was going on, Ed Sanchez began building a crude website on this new thing called the Internet. Here he would use a lot of footage that never made it into the movie, the interviews and the newscasts, in an attempt to make the disappearance of Josh, Mike, and Heather seem a real thing. The website had the timeline to document what had happened leading up to the kid's disappearance. Ed wrote a whole lot of stuff, and soon it began going viral long before viral was a thing. While many realized it was just a promotion for a movie, others began to think it was real. And since the actors used the real names, many people thought that these young adults were actually missing. The filmmakers encouraged this by asking the actors to keep a low profile until the film came out. It was so convincing that Heather's mom started to receive sympathy cards in the mail. If you want to know how people could get fooled by this, Watch the short film Sticks and Stones, an exploration of the Blair Witch legend. It's, it's on YouTube, and it was made with all that footage, and it's actually done very well. But the makers of the film never wanted to tell people that the Blair Witch was actually real. And they walked a fine line between making it seem real without ever saying it was. Sanchez said, We never lied. It wasn't like we were trying to do a hoax. We always thought if you trick people into the theater and they find out it's not real, they're going to be really angry. By the time the film got into Sundance, it had become a big deal. It was the big buzz of the festival, and soon they signed a huge deal with Artisan Entertainment. 
Originally, the filmmakers were hoping they could just get their film on cable TV or something, make a little money, and never in their wildest dreams could they have imagined it would become this worldwide phenomenon that grossed over $250 million on a budget of around 60000 The success of the film was hard on all the cast, who went from nobodies to huge stars overnight. They were all young, and they seemed to all have a hard time dealing with it. Heather said she met people who seemed to be mad at her that she was still alive. She said, I was just in this position where I was in the face of this thing that kind of blew up. I was totally unprotected, you know. Michael said it was sort of terrifying, and Joshua said, I mean, look, to be completely honest, so much of an experience like that happens in a blackout. When your life changes that drastically, that quickly, you don't actually know how crazy you are until you have the opportunity of hindsight. Artisan took complete control of the film. That included all the merchandising, the sequels, the video games, everything. Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez were both left out. Joshua Leonard said of Artisan, I think some people might be a little bitter about the experience. I will say that we had what I have discovered was an incredibly classless experience with Artisan. The only nice thing I remember happening in my interactions with them was when the film crossed the 100 million mark, they sent me a fruit basket. Literally every other interaction was yelling at me about something that I was doing that I shouldn't be doing or wasn't doing that I should be doing. Dan and Ed wanted to make a prequel, but Artisan had other ideas, and they made their own film, The Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. It did so poorly that a planned third film never happened. Sanchez still hopes that one day they will get to tell the story of how the Blair Witch came to be. Daniel Merrick and Eduardo Sanchez are the co-directors of what's now the most profitable film ever made. We spoke to this entertaining duo about their fright film phenomenon, which was inspired by the In Search of Television documentaries of the 70s. You know, that's what really inspired us with Blair Witch, you know, and I had a UFO club when I was a kid, and, you know, uh, there was just this kind of whole, this general neurosis I think people had, and also a fascination with wanting to believe in that stuff. And, you know, so that was what we grew up on. That's what scared us as kids, you know. And Blair Witch was a, a definite, you know, rip-off of the In Search of shows. Yeah, at least know? the feeling. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, we remember when we were kids, you know, after you watched that show, you would be sitting there in front of the TV, you'd be like, holy moly, Bigfoot you see that is real. Bigfoot running, you're like, oh. And the Loch Ness yeah. Monster is real, and the UFOs are real. So, you know, you're sitting at home, and you're, you're like, once again, the whole window thing. Yeah. You're sitting there in your room, and all of a sudden, well, it's no like, windows in my you house. look over at the window, and you think, God, imagine if the shadow of Bigfoot or some, some little alien came by, and it was just like, and then you can't look at the window anymore. You start freaking yourself out, because now that you're not looking at it, you're sure that the shadow's there now. All right. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. You know, I probably could have made a whole Coffee with Jeff story on just what happened to the cast and crew once the Blair Witch Project became such a huge hit, but uh, I'm not going to do that. So, But like I said, there was a sequel that came out about a year later called The Book of Shadows Blair Witch 2. Merrick and Sanchez were listed as executive producers of the film, but later said that they had little influence on production and were unsatisfied with the finished film. 
The film was directed and co-written by Joe Berlinger. Joe was a documentary filmmaker, and this was his first feature. The film was disappointing, to say the least, but it might have not been Joe's fault, as the film was taken away from him by Artisan Entertainment and recut with additional footage being filmed. These things happen all the time. A studio buys a film that they had nothing to do with, that was really successful, and then they take it away thinking that they know better than those that made the original, and usually it doesn't turn out well. A third film was planned, but Blair Witch 2 did so bad, the franchise was killed. There was a new film that came out this year, but it wasn't made by the original filmmakers either. But if I understand it correctly, they were given the opportunity to make the film, but decided to let somebody else take over. One last thing, the house that was used at the end, the historical home that was built in the 1800s, well, apparently so many people went to the house on the success of the film and took souvenirs, basically vandalized the home, that the home was left in such a state that they had no choice but to demolish it. So these days the house is gone. You know, the Psycon Network has a lot of plans to expand. Many of these plans have been in the works for years. But why doesn't it happen? Because of money. If you'd like to help us in our goal of being a rich media conglomerate and making Brecky the next Rupert Murdoch, why not think about becoming a sponsor at our Patreon page? You can find out all the information you need to know at Psycon's website, that's CSICON.FM. And of course, a sincere and heartfelt thank you to all of you who already support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. The latest episode of Gordon's Gun Closet is a show that was recorded live at the Watson Washington's Convention in which they discuss the kinds of firearms Dr. Watson might have carried in his literary adventures with Sherlock Holmes. Very interesting stuff, and you can check out this and all the other shows over at Psycon.fm. And you know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can complain, you can say hi, you can tell me how you're feeling. I'll answer your email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word, though I have to tell you, I haven't been posting on it lately, but I'll start again this week. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome and mutually needed. And if you want to find out why I've been so busy lately, just go over to YouTube and check out The Devil Cat, my little short film that was filmed in about three days. And it sort of looks like it, but I like it. You know, if you want to support the show, but you don't have the coin to help financially, and that's something I think we can all understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave me a review. Those reviews help me so much, you wouldn't believe it. And remember, all the sources that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, Nancy Fry for suggesting today's subject, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, 
Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those who repost this show. And a special shout out. And a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back next week. Coffee. Bye. With Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Met a girl from Bean Town. Jeff was always hanging around. She drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff